In critical times, great leaders utter profound words that galvanize their people for victory. In his first speech to the House of Commons as the new Prime Minister of Great Britain in May of 1940, Winston Churchill rallied the British against Nazi Germany. He said, among other things in that speech, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Later he said, you may ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. As powerful and inspiring as those words were in a critical moment of world history, they pale in comparison to the analogy that Jesus explained to his disciples as they walked from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. At that critical moment, Jesus uttered a simple yet profound analogy with three layers of meaning. Before we look at his three layers, however, let's read the analogy that Jesus shared with his disciples at that critical moment. If you'd like to turn with me to John 15, it will not be on this, the screen. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus said as they walked, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." Now let's consider the three layers of this simple analogy and its profound implications. At the first layer, we have the analogy stated. In that first layer, the main characters and their roles in the kingdom of God are compared to the inner workings of a flourishing vineyard. This has a background that would resonate with the disciples because throughout the Old Testament, Israel was compared to a vineyard. And in Isaiah 5, we have a very tragic story. Isaiah, is, is, he writes what we call the song of the vineyard, and he's talking about how Israel has been faithless there. But in this easy-to-understand analogy on its most simple level, Jesus made three comparisons. The first, he compared himself to a very special grapevine. God had intended Israel to be his people to the world, but they had failed miserably in that task. Consequently, Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled for God what Israel never could. Jesus, however, was not merely a grapevine. 
He was the only true vine. Secondly, he compared his father to, to the owner or the gardener of the vineyard. In those days, there were at least three important duties of any vineyard gardener. First of all, during the growing season, he had to take care of the soil. And among other things, that would mean things like keeping the soil watered, keeping it free of weeds, and so forth. Secondly, during the growing season, the gardener would take care of the vine itself to make the branches as fruitful as possible. So branches that would bear no fruit would be cut out so that those branches would not take some of the strength of the vine just for keeping them alive. And then thirdly, during the off-season, the gardener would prepare the vine for even greater blessings by pruning the branches that had borne fruit. And thirdly, Jesus compared the disciples to the grapevine branches that the gardener cared for during the grape-producing season and pruned during the off-season. It's a very simple analogy. We understand it at a very simple level. But the next two layers are far more profound than the simple analogy that he made. Because in the second layer, the analogy was applied to its initial audience. We rarely talk about that, but today we are. You see, to understand what's going on here and why Jesus said this at this critical moment as they were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we have to see the larger context And we can explain the larger context by answering four simple questions that you now see on the screen in in your bulletin. First, what had the disciples already experienced? Secondly, what would the disciples soon encounter? Thirdly, why would they be so devastated? And fourthly, why do we need this analogy still and they? So let's answer those questions. Question one, what had the disciples already experienced at this point? Well, as we said, it was the night before Christ's crucifixion. And for three years, he had spent many, many days with his 12, telling them who he was, what he came to do, and what their role would be in his kingdom. On this fateful night, he had already shared his last meal with them, at least his last before his crucifixion. And during that meal, he had instituted what we have come to call the Lord's Supper. And with other frustration, Jesus had watched his disciples afterwards then argue over their expected levels of power and authority and what they believed would be the coming physical kingdom of Jesus on earth to thwart their lust for power and control. Jesus had then washed the disciples' feet to teach them that spiritual leaders are not concerned about power and authority but about serving. Shortly thereafter, then Jesus had it revealed to the twelve that one of them would brazenly betray him that night. And then he quietly dismissed Judas to do his dirty work. Soon after that, Jesus had to squelch Peter's false bravado by telling him that before the next morning arrived, he would deny him three times. Finally, Jesus had told the remaining 11 that he would be leaving them soon, but he, he would be returning soon after, but not as they would expect, but through 
the coming Holy Spirit, knowing full well that they really did not understand that statement at all at that moment. And thus, at the moment that Jesus was leading them from the upper room towards the Garden of Gethsemane, he was formally teaching them for the very last time prior to his crucifixion. Question two, what would the disciples soon encounter? Well, Jesus knew that once in the garden, he would pray three long, gut-wrenching prayers to his father about the events leading up ultimately to his crucifixion and his death. And he also knew that during that time while he was praying, his apostles would fail miserably as a support system in his time of need. Jesus also knew that when he finished praying, that Judas could be seen bringing a, a group of motley characters, a contingency of Jewish leaders, temple guards, and Roman soldiers to the garden to betray Jesus into their hands. Jesus further knew that the next day he would endure the, the, the jeers and the taunts and the, and the trials, the visceral brutality of scourging, the horror of crucifixion, and finally his death on the cross for the sins of all mankind for all time. And ultimately Jesus knew that at that point his disciples these men that he had cared for for three years training them would be utterly devastated and disillusioned. Question three, why would the disciples be so devastated? Well, Jesus knew that during the next day's horrifying events, the disciples would see their dream of a glorious earthly kingdom on earth with Jesus sitting on the throne annihilated. He also knew that despite the fact that in just three days he would be raised from the dead, that during those three long agonizing days, they would become progressively more discouraged, disillusioned, and susceptible to Satan's seductions because they thought it was all over in many ways. Jesus further knew that even if they did survive the next three days, that they would be by, attacked by Satan at every turn in their future ministry into all the world. And they might give up the fight without him there to raise their spirits and their resolve. Question four. Why did the disciples so desperately need to hear this particular analogy at that moment in time as they walked toward the Garden of Gethsemane? What could Jesus possibly say to his disciples en route that would ensure that they not allow Satan to so pull them away from God and from him at that moment that his mission would be a failure through them? Well, on this slow walk to Gethsemane, Jesus discussed far more than simply this analogy. This is where he began. Soon after the vineyard analogy, Jesus then went on to explain in great detail that people would hate them in their ministry for him just as they hated him. He then told them that when the Holy Spirit would come upon them after he left, as he had introduced earlier in the upper room, that the Spirit within them would make all things clear to them. 
And then finally, he detailed to them how they would soon be overwhelmed with grief, but then in a short time, it would turn to unbelievable joy. What's fascinating is before he talked about those three things, he gave them the basis that, that, it, that gave meaning to all three of those topics in this simple analogy. I wish we had time to explain how, but that's a sermon for another time. So what exactly was Jesus telling the apostles about the near and long-term future with his vineyard analogy? Well, they needed to understand, they needed to be convinced that the kingdom of God, like a vineyard, was the creation of God, and as such, it was the expression of God's love. It was the property of God, the omnipotent gardener. They needed to understand that God, the everlasting gardener, had placed all the power and all the expectation of a bountiful harvest under the authority of Jesus, the true vine. They further needed to understand that no matter how bleak the coming hours and days and years might seem, they were merely branches off the vine, Jesus, and had to remain connected to him throughout it all if they were to succeed in serving God. As Jesus put it in John 15 in verse 5, which we read earlier, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how did Christ's plan unfold for the apostles? Well, let's see. Were they confused and discouraged and disillusioned on the day of cru the crucifixion? Yes. Were they even more so the next three days? Undoubtedly. Did they initially doubt that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead? Yes. But did they ever stop believing in Jesus? No, they did not. In fact, just 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, these apostles, empowered by the Spirit, began a powerful ministry that shook that country and shook the apostles. In Acts 2, at the end of that powerful sermon by Peter in which he preached about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, then 3,000 souls were baptized into Christ, and there was no apostle there that would have said, oh, that's such a slow number, or such a low number. They were amazed at all that happened. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because Jesus had said, don't just remain in me. If you do, you're going to be pruned by my father, the gardener. What did that mean? Well, here are a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a man just outside the temple who had been lame from birth. A crowd gathered, and then Peter was given the opportunity to preach a powerful sermon. And while Peter and John no doubt basked in the glory of it all, the opportunity to heal and the opportunity to people to gather and preach the word of God, in their moment of seeming victory, then God pruned them. Because what happened next was the Jewish leaders came out, sent their representatives anyway, had them arrested, thrown into prison overnight before being grilled the next day by the Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin that had listened to Jesus and then 
made sure that he got crucified. God was pruning Peter and John to teach them that their success in reaching people was not their own doing. Rather, it was in remaining in Christ and being pruned by God from time to time. Our second example, in Acts chapter 12, King Herod arrested the apostle James and had him executed. Seeing that this pleased the Jews, Herod then arrested Peter, no doubt intending to kill him as well. Only after allowing Peter to languish for hours all the rest of that day and well into the, the night, probably just sitting there awaiting his death sentence, only then did God finally send an angel who freed Peter that night. This was yet again God pruning Peter to remind him that the power was not in his understanding, the power was not in his gifts, it was in Christ to fulfill his mission. In other words, everything that the apostles accomplished for Jesus was the direct result of, of staying in Christ and being continually pruned by their father. It was a lesson that they learned slowly and sometimes painfully, but learned it they did. Thus, at this critical moment, as Jesus begins to lead them from the upper room toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he gives them this simple analogy of a vineyard. And that brings us to the third layer, and the layer that's most relevant to us, the analogy applied to all succeeding generations. In a sense, we could say that there are always critical moments for Christ's disciples in every generation. We always have Satan throwing evil desires at us, the desire for money, the desire for power, the desire for pleasure, the desire for sex, in all the wrong ways. And these pull at people. They pull at us. And if it's not that kind of evil desire, then there's a desire to be selfish or jealous or apathetic or anything else we want. Satan has a whole arsenal of tools at his pleasure. And we could stop right here and say, that's all we need. We're in a critical time because we're always being tempted. And we could, but we're not going to. Because every so often throughout history, there are some special circumstances that arise that call for even extra special diligence on the part of Christ's followers. Most of whom we have no evidence of their existence through the years. But Christ said the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. Consequently, consider some special times during history since the cross where people have had to have special diligence if they wanted to truly serve the Lord. When the Roman Empire tried to extinguish Christianity through banning its practice and promising violent execution for people who ignored the mandate, true disciples desperately needed to remain in Christ. Some, however, were more concerned with life in the present than life in eternity and they walked away from the Lord. In the early 4th century, when Constantine insisted that everyone in the Roman Empire become Christians, and the church was glutted with baptized non-believers, 
True disciples desperately needed to remain in Christ. But many lowered their standards to that of the conscripted unbelievers, and they spiritually died. During the Dark Ages, the few true disciples that probably were there that we don't know anything about were again persecuted by ecclesiastical kingdoms and had to choose between remaining in Christ and falling in line, and many just fell in line and gave up their souls. When the Age of Enlightenment transformed Western civilization and disciplines such as mathematics and the sciences became the source of truth for people rather than Jesus and the Word of God, true disciples faced yet another critical moment when millions became servants of Lord Science instead of the Lord Jesus. And then in the late 20th century, when postmodernism, with its view that there's no objective standard of right and wrong, that you make up your own religion and your own God and nobody can say anything about it, when that became the norm for people in America, at least many of them, true disciples had to cling to Jesus more than ever before or be swept up in a religion of self-serving meaninglessness. And finally, as we today, near the end of the second decade of the 21st century, a new threat is set to decimate many more Christians, and this threat may well even remove some of us here today. We can explain this looming threat in four stages, one of which has already become the norm, and a second one is in the process of reaching normalization. In stage one, for 30 years or more, it has become a well-established norm that Christians and Christianity should be ridiculed in as many ways and as often as possible. Just a few examples of what we've already seen. For years, artists have and continue to create works that depict Jesus in obscene and pornographic ways, and their creations are lauded by the worldly image makers, scoffing and laughing at anything Christian. Or when Chick-fil-A opened a store in New York City, the New Yorker magazine described that as, and I quote, a creepy infiltration in New York City because of the Christian views of its owners, the Kathy family. Our Christian groups on secular college campuses across this nation have been and continue to be persecuted and sometimes assaulted for no other reason than their trust in Jesus. And every year we seem to hear yet another high school football coach is fired for the heinous act of taking a knee on the field after a game and praying. Stage two. In the last 10 years or so, Christians who have taken a stand in their businesses against biblically immoral actions have been sued and they've either lost their cases, or in many cases they have lost their businesses and their life savings in defending themselves. Christian colleges are being assaulted by so-called social justice warriors trying to strip the Christian colleges of accreditation. I'm sure we've all heard of the case in 2012 with Jack Phillips, the owner of the cake shop in Lakewood, Colorado, who was sued for refusing to design a wedding cake to celebrate homosexual marriage of two men, and he lost his case. And for years, he could not 
run his business and do what he enjoyed. It took years before the Supreme Court reversed that decision, but who knows what the future holds for other such cases. And then just 16 days ago, on May 17th, the House of Representatives passed the LBGT Equality Bill designed to ban all discrimination of the LBGTQ community. I doubt that it will be passed by the Senate at this point, and I doubt that our president would sign it into law, but who knows about the future. But legal scholars are already saying that if that bill ever passes, that it may well criminalize Christianity in America. And if not, it'll pave the way for future legislation that would. Stage three. Through court cases, the LBGT community is seeking rulings that would force all churches to fully accept as church members in good standing, every one of them, and every one of anybody else, including having the right to teach, preach, and lead, or lose all church property and legal recognition as a registered religious entity in America. You say, surely that couldn't happen. I pray not. But who knows? Stage four. You say, it couldn't get any worse. Oh, yes, it could. Ten years ago, I don't think any of us would give give credence to what I'm about to say, but now the socialist movement of the far left will continue to push toward full-fledged socialism, and if they ever get there, then they move to communism because every socialist state always does. And if they succeed in doing that, they will either abolish Christianity altogether as a legal thing, or they will create a state-run entity from it that will stand for nothing but a worship of the state under the guise of Christian terminology. We feel like we've gone into the twilight zone at this point, but we need to realize that these things are all possibilities. Satan will go as far as he's allowed to go in every century. Now that we know why not only is it always critical because of Satan's temptations, but that we're on the cusp of yet another one of those special times in history, what does Jesus have to say to us? Well, before we go back to the text one last time, Let's quickly remind ourselves what Jesus didn't command us to do. He didn't command us to pick at all courts adjudicating cases potentially threatening and damaging to to Christians, to Christianity, and to churches. He didn't uh, order us to organize a sit-down protest encircling the Capitol building so that all the congressmen and senators would have to go through the gauntlet of us every time they went in or came out. Jesus didn't uh, command us to coordinate a mailing campaign aimed at the members of the Supreme Court. Now, none of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but that should never be our primary focus. And one more, Jesus didn't command us to fret, worry, and agonize. So what did Jesus say? He said he gave us two action steps in this text in John 15. The first one, he said, you've got to remain in me, and I've got to remain in you. That sounds so simple, but how in the world do we do that? Well, for those of us who are married, 
we just have to think about how we fell in love with our spouse. And for, for those of you who are hoping one day to be married, then think about how you want to find that person for you. In short, you, 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 you're together and, and one shares his or her heart to the other and the other shares their heart back and you get to know this person and you appreciate them. And in time, you prove your love by doing things that show that their needs and their desires are more important than yours. And anything less than that, that's probably not a good relationship to go further with. Well, with Christ, it's pretty much the same thing. I have a little acrostic for you. It's R-A-P, not the, the music today, but something far different. We've got to read the word. That's listening to God that's listening to Jesus share his heart with us. In the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, I'm coming. Everything here says, I'm coming to you to save you. You get to the Gospels and Jesus is saying, I finally came. And I lived for you and then I died for you. And the rest of the New Testament, he's saying, and this is how I want you to live for me. It's his love letter to us. I wish there was a simpler way to do that. But we've got to read. We've got to take the time, find the time to read and pray and apply every day. But that's not all. Because that brings us to the second step, and that is we've got to prepare for God's unpredictable through pruning throughout the rest of our lives. When God prunes us, he either causes or allows to happen to us things that sometimes can feel overwhelming and definitely painful. As an example, someday, you and I may have to choose between being severely ridiculed by people close to us, some of our family, our friends, our peer group, maybe fellow employees or neighbors, maybe even the local media gets on our case. We can choose to suffer that, or we can take the easy route and marginalize our faith for the sake of getting along with our potential ridiculers. Someday we may face the choice of losing our business or our reputation or even our life savings for the sake of standing for Jesus. Or we may choose to surrender our faith and our principles to whatever society or our government demands. Someday we may have to watch as the courts demand that our elders and ministers buckle to the demands of full acceptance of all groups, whether righteous or not. Or forfeit all of our church property and our right to exist legally in this country. And someday your faith and mine in Christ may be declared illegal and punishable by who knows what, imprisonment, torture, death, and we can take that choice or we can succumb to whatever the courts of this land decree. And when all Whenever those things or anything like them happens in our lives, then God watches. He watches to see which way we turn. Do we turn to Christ or do we turn to the government? If we turn to Christ, he has successfully pruned us for either greater service. Despite seemingly overwhelming odds, the apostles heeded Christ's analogy and remain true to Christ throughout their lives. And now here we are. Will we remain in Christ, or draw near to him and then remain in Christ? And will we accept the pruning of the Lord? 
Make the right choice. It's a matter of eternity. If you need to respond to God's invitation today through Christ, why don't you come as we stand and sing?